The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. When life hands you a unique shift, what happens next? The gift is the shift. Welcome to The Sky's the Limit with your host, Karen Levitt. In our program, you will hear from people who have discovered the gift, whether through personal experience or those that are helping others through this experience. You'll find the next hour to be a motivating and encouraging one. Now, here is Karen Levitt. Hi, thank you for joining The Sky's the Limit. This is Karen Levitt, and I have the pleasure to be joined with Jeff Sebow. And a little bit about Jeff. In 1975, he experienced a traumatic brain injury, or TBI, during the summer before his junior year in college. He suffered frontal lobe and brainstem injuries and was comatose for 30 days. Jeff returned to college five months after his accident and finished college one semester late, earning a BA in economics. After college, he worked as a disc jockey and music director at a radio station in Colorado. Following that, he worked in a family business of manufacturing for nearly 25 years. Jeff is active in supporting other survivors referred to him by forming National Head Injury Foundation in the early 1980s. And with that, I would like to welcome Jeff Sebow. Hello. Hi, thank you. It's, it's an honor to have you here on the program. And um, I shared a little bit about who you were briefly, and I wondered if you'd like to go into a little bit about what life was like or who Jeff was before your accident. I don't remember you, you who don't. Jeff was. So, uh, uh, well, you know, life, uh, uh, as for, I think, all TBX survivors, life was very different before my accident. I was a you know really good student. I had academic awards. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was a good athlete and, you know, had a fairly good social life. And then things changed a little bit or mm-hmm. a lot. And, um, you know, basically things have went 180 degrees and I had to learn to adjust to all the changes that had occurred in my life. Mm-hmm. And this happened when you were in college. You said you were an athlete, Jeff. What, um, what sports did you play in, in school? Well, and, I wasn't and- uh, a, a, uh, like a, a varsity athlete, but I was an intramural. I played uh, a little hockey, mm-hmm. um, soccer, um, some baseball, you know, um, but I skied and, you know, did things like that on my own. Nice. And, uh, it, that wasn't the, the, the interesting thing about, well, the thing about my brain injury mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. that it affected me mostly, uh, mentally, cognitively, you know, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, my physical stuff was, took me a took me a long time to get back. I was in a wheelchair at first, and then I with a cane, but it eventually I was able to work on it and, you know, got most of it back. Right. And then a, um, your injury your a- was acquired in a car accident, and with that was a long and winding road. You, you actually went into a coma, so I wondered if you could share, if you remember the accident at all, what that was like. Um, you know, like I said, life before, and then in an instant, your life changed, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, the, you know, I don't remember anything from the accident. I remember, mm-hmm. like, two little scenes from that day. Um, but that's really about it. And then, you know, the next thing I knew, I was basically waking up in the hospital. And, um, you know, sensed, uh, you know, right away that, things were going to be very different. I just had this feeling that um, everything had changed Mm -hmm. and that, um, you know, I was going to have to figure out a lot in order to 
uh, you know, figure out how to live my life. You know, one of the things that I almost immediately thought when I was in the hospital was that I said to myself, said, well, now my life has meaning. I don't know hmm. why I said that or why I thought that, but I felt like, I think I said it because I felt like there was a long struggle in front of me. Hmm. And, um, you know, struggle always, struggle and challenge always give something to us, give us meaning or, um, you know, perspective and, uh, can be a good thing in mm-hmm. some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I coined the phrase, the gift is a shift through my experience that I had an awakening that was deep and profound and mm-hmm. it came to, yeah, so to put it in a nutshell for me was the gift is a shift. So when I was able to change my attitude, I guess, or yeah, my way of thinking, right? Uh, th- then, then that, you know, that was my gift because then I was able to move forward, which it sounds like that's what you, you did as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So were you in the hospital a long time and you did the usual course of rehab or did they say you had a concussion or brain injury right off the bat? Well, um, you know, uh, they knew I had a brain injury because I was in a coma for a month. Uh, but that's but, true. I apologize. You know, no, nobody really knew, or I, I, nobody really knew what that meant at that time. That was 1975. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was really the dark ages of treatment of people with brain injury. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think the hardest, it was hardest on my family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to watch me go through this. But I, you know, my accident was in August and I was in a coma till September. And then I was, I went to an acute care hospital. I was about three hours from my house. Uh, mm-hmm. And they moved me to an acute care hospital near my house. So my parents could be closer. And I was there for two weeks. And then I was in a rehab hospital for a month. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, my, my goals were, I found out what the average stay at the rehab hospital was, and mm-hmm. I said, well, I'm going to stay less than that. So okay. my goal was to get out just before that, and I set a date that I wanted to be, wanted to be um, uh, kicked out, whatever they call it. Discharge? What they call it. Discharge, <laughs> yeah, discharge, yeah. Discharge, yeah. yeah. Can I ask? So, um, oh. Excuse me? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I was going to ask what the average stay in rehab was in 1975, if you remember. Uh, I think it was like 30 days, 31 days, something like that. Okay. okay. So I figured I'd stay that, mu- that much, and that would be like my limit. And um, so I stayed, and, and, and then I, I got out, and they... And my goal all along was to go... And I don't know why I said this, but... I said almost immediately, I said, I'm going back to college in January. And, um, you know, I didn't know what that really meant Mm -hmm. other than, you know, there was something to say. Right. But, you know, after I got discharged from the rehab hospital, I went to see my neurologist. And he he said, what are you going to do with yourself? And I said, well, I'm going back to college in January, which was in two months. And he said, well, if you're going back to college, you better learn how to write. Because I couldn't really, I couldn't write anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, you know, I went through this whole thing with copying stuff so that I could teach myself how to write again. And, and ended up going back to college at a three-quarter course load. You know, and it was, a, it was, it was really tough, but it was the best thing for me. Yeah, I, you know, I, I understand. Doing something. I understand. I have difficulty writing. I have major dyslexia, and I'm not able to type anymore. Everything's electronic, so I can't, as you know, um, type. I can't use a keyboard or a laptop. I have to actually right, talk. Right. Yeah, I, I use an app that does voice to text, which can be fun. Sometimes things turn out backwards, but that's okay. So, yeah, that, that must have been a challenge going back to college, hon. Were your um, therapists in rehab, were they supportive, or did, were they just sort of... They just, you know, I call it gently, mildly encouraging you, you know, because they don't want to discourage you. So what, what, were, what was it like? With- well, 
They, um, the, I went, they the, the head of the rehab hospital said, or whoever it was, the doctor said, you can go back to college, but I'm not discharging you till March, so you have to come back here, and we'll have to have mm-hmm. another appointment. Mm-hmm. And um, so I said, okay, and I did some outpatient therapy before I went back. And they were, you know, they were pretty supportive and, you know, helped me. They had me read some of my old textbooks, and I realized I had forgotten everything and didn't real- know anything anymore and got a little concerned. But, mm-hmm. you know, I figured the college would be... A- you know, I was pretty lucky in that I could return to a place that was like a laboratory. I could just do stuff, do my best, and, um, you know, work on my own, myself. I could work out. I could I could do all kinds of things. And mm-hmm. um, it was just the best place for me. And the interesting thing was I, um, when I got back, my I met my macroeconomics teacher, who said to me, looked at me and said, you know, I was in a coma for 30 days, too. I said, you were? Really? Yeah. And he said, yeah. And he explained to me that, you know, what had happened to him. And, and I said, geez, you know, look at him. He's a professor. But well, mm-hmm. if he can do it, I can do it. You know, and that was a, without really knowing it, that was a pretty big, pretty big boost for me. Just having well, it there. is. So that I was, mean... he was actually the first one outside of the rehab hospital I ever met who had been in a coma and um, you know that was that was a great thing for me wow that that's incredible and like I said you you know you had him before for classes and you never knew why would you right and right, you come exactly. back and then you find out this huge piece that's 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 wonderful really so we never truly know what anybody really goes through and that was actually a gift to you um, right yeah. So I can't imagine going back to college. I mean, you you, had, you said you had the realization things would be different. What was college life like? Because I know, you know, I have noise and sound and light sensitivity, so I can't imagine going back into a college environment. What was that like for you? Well, that was really interesting because most of my noise and light sensitivity just happened within the last 15 or 20 years. And I really wasn't that sensitive to that stuff then. Mm-hmm. But the most most of the stuff that I had the problem was with, you know, walking across campus when it was all icy, and trying to you know trying to get across without falling, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know that kind of thing, and you know social relationships and friends, and you know mm-hmm. and it got got really difficult with some of my couple of my courses and. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one point I had to go see the school psychologist, you know, uh, and he kept saying, well, what's wrong? And I said, well, I was in this car accident and I was in a coma for a month. And he kept saying, well, forget about that. How's your sex life? And, you know, I said, oh, geez, I can't really talk to this guy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, so I just I just walked out of that. But, yeah, there were, there were some difficult moments. Um. Yeah, you know, but I think some you know good things came out of it. Yeah did did you notice any differences? I noticed for myself and a lot of other people. There's the sleep cycle is really disturbed, and um, yeah, my sleep cycle and uh, what I'm sorry, no, now I forgot. I apologize. So my sleep cycle was really disturbed, and I know um, well obviously concentration and mm-hmm. uh, memory. Yeah. So so yeah, to go back yeah. to college that seems you know, daunting, like climbing a mountain. So yeah, it, was, it actually was, it was, um, I took courses for the most part that only re- that required papers and essays and didn't require tests. Oh. Because um, I knew I was going to have trouble remembering stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I kind of planned that out a little bit. Um, until my last required course for my major, which I was flunking till the final. And that was, you know, I was really, really kind of, that really bothered me, that, that all the pressure. And at one point I felt like I was might kill myself for a little bit, but not really seriously. Uh-huh. 
I was just nervous that I was going to drive off the road or something. You just had a really, did you really have that deep depression? Like, you didn't know what you were yeah, doing? Yeah, I was, I was pretty scared, you know, and um, but I got through it, so mm-hmm. it worked out okay. Nice. And, you know, what about your friends in college? Because I know you graduated a semester after everybody, so when you came back, you know, what was it like with you with your friends, your peer group? You know, were they were they receptive, or you know, did they notice some changes? And how were they when you? Well, it was interesting because like five of them came and visited me in the hospital. But when mm-hmm. I got back to school, and everybody was really welcoming at first. After that, almost everybody just kind of felt you know they could didn't know how to, what to do with me. They didn't know how to deal with me. I didn't know mm-hmm. how to deal with them. So it was. Um, you know, I don't know. I think at the time I like to blame them for just leaving me by the road. But right. In retrospect, I had a lot to do with it. You know, I, I think we don't always see both sides of the equation. Right. And I know that. I know that later on, when I was living in Colorado, I had a friend who was actually hit by a car and had, was in a coma. And and he was coming back to town, and I said, well, boy, it'd be great for me to hang out with him, and, you know, we could shit back and help him out if possible, and he can help me out, you know, it'd be great. And he came back to town, and it was just really hard to communicate with him. Uh-huh. And to, no matter how hard I tried, I just couldn't get onto a level with him where we were, you know, sort of, any in any form uh, doing anything together, mm-hmm. conversation, whatever, and it was you know, I there was nothing I could do. I just felt terrible about that, but I couldn't do anything. Right, and I Sounds realized like then what I must have been like to the people I at my college when I came back. Hmm. Yeah, it's almost like you're speaking two different languages, and it's really wise that you were able to see that that's may have that may have been you that may you know yeah. like yeah. the person you were yeah. looking at. Yeah, and I actually yeah. um, looked up a couple of my friends uh, twenty years after I graduated, and one of them lived in the next town. And I you know got together with them, and and you know everybody felt bad about the way they you know they were towards me and. You know, and and I realized that all the the anger that I sort of held about stuff like that wasn't mm-hmm. really founded. It was, you know, it's just something I was feeling that it really had no reason for. Mm-hmm. You know, they were doing the best they can, they could, and they didn't know how to do it or what to do. So, you know, right. how could you fault that? Right. Well, no, I understand. I do. But they, you know, and they can't see the injury. We, you look the same, but yet um, the inner workings are not the same, and it's difficult for people. Yeah, because exactly. they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's difficult. So we're coming up in a quick break, Jeff. So I would okay. like to ask the list. Yeah, I would like to ask the listeners to please stay with us. We're going to break for a moment, and we'll be right back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com It's time to access your magic. Tune in each week to Living in the Magic of Possibilities with your host, Glenice Hughes. Our topics cover finances, personal health, business, relationships, mediumship, and so much more. If you want to access all that is possible in your life, listen to Glenice and her expert guests who've turned the impossible into the possible. Living in the Magic of Possibilities is heard live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 
At the leading edge of quantum science, a revolution of ideas is emerging that challenges everything we believe about the nature of our world and how we define ourselves within it. Quantum Connection, exploring health, science, and spirit with Marina Rose QDNA, explores these cutting-edge breakthroughs in quantum science and offers piercing, probing, colorful, insightful dialogue and commentary with some of the world's most influential thought leaders on the most important topics of our time. Listen every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Are you ready for a health, life, and empowerment show in one? Then be sure to listen every week for Living Well with Ann Beal. Ann takes her long-running TV show to the Internet Talk Radio Airwaves with guest experts and insight designed to help you live a healthy and successful life. By hearing from the experts and those who have found success, our goal is that you too will be motivated to do the same. Living Well with Ann Beal can be heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to The Sky's the Limit with Karen Levitt. If you have a comment or question about the show, we encourage you to send an email to the sky's the limit show at gmail.com. That's the sky's the limit show at gmail.com. And remember to use the hashtag the gift is the shift all over social media and encourage others to discover the program. Now, back to Karen Levitt. Hi, everyone. It's Karen Levitt, and I'm joined with my guest, Jeff Sebell. And Jeff is a traumatic brain injury survivor and author of his book. His book is called Learning to Live with Yourself After Brain Injury. And Jeff had his injury in 1975. So Jeff was talking about what it was like for him as he graduated from college a month later, earning his degree in economics. So um, Jeff, if we can pick up where we left off, that would be awesome. So um, the first five years for you after, what was that like? Well, uh, it was an interesting time. I, I was, I was, you know, tr- trying to learn about myself and find myself. And and um, one of the things I wanted to uh, sort of be someplace where I could start over. Uh huh. So, um, a year after my accident, I ended up taking a semester abroad, um, and. Uh, you know, because it's something that had been planned before my accident, but I didn't go because of my accident. And okay. I just and I ended up and I decided to go to go now. And one of the things I wanted to do when I did that, I said, "Well, look at nobody there knows I have a head injury. I'm not going to tell anyone, and I'm really? just going to go and be in this world where." I can just be whoever I'm going to be and, you know, not have to think about my brain injury all the time or how it's affecting me or this or that or the other thing. And I can just, you know, live my life and see what other people, how other people react to me. So I did that and I got some, I got some very weird comments and things happen and, you know, people uh, you know, they were good to me, but it was, they thought I was strange. And, uh-huh. um, you know, I didn't do anything to disprove that because <laughs> I really couldn't. And, uh, but it was a great time for me to be self-reliant and to really learn about myself. And, uh-huh. um, you know, and I traveled, I traveled, um, by myself in Europe and, um, for about a month and, you know, it was just great. You know, it was, it was just a great time. And and so the, that was one of the, well, that really gave me a lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. You know, the the thing that strikes me about right now about brain injury is that people want seem to want everybody to know that they have a brain injury. You know, and I'm not saying that bad, in a bad way, but I'm saying that they want people to know because it explains to them why they are the way they are. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And, I understand. Um, you know, and my goal 
was to have nobody know I had a brain injury. But my goal was to be a person in the world just like I was before. I mean, I wouldn't be identical, but I would, I would um, be living my life, mm-hmm. you know, as if I was just a regular person. Right, so you Without were like, a brain injury. I just had certain things I could or couldn't do or certain things I did strangely. So that was that was really big for me. Yeah, it sounds um, to me like you were living on purpose now. You know, like like you said, you, you wanted to do something meaningful and you didn't really want to tell people or have the label of brain injury. So um, you, you were living fully, living on purpose. And I, I love yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. So it was sort of like that. So, no, that was good. It gave me, you know, it obviously gave me a lot of confidence, even though, you know, I was really tired all a lot and slept a lot, you know, during the, during the day when I got tired. And, you know, I go to plays and I fall asleep during the play and things like that. Um, you know, and, and my social relationships were pretty screwed up because I really couldn't have them the way I used to. But, it didn't matter to me because I was on my own and, you know, I did the best I could. Mm-hmm. Um, then one important thing I did was I graduated from college after that and I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what I could do. So I ended up driving out to Colorado. And one thing I did, well, I should um, say that I always had a radio show in college. Mm-hmm. And I decided when I came back to college after my accident, I would still do the radio show, even though I had pretty good, pretty bad speech problems. And um, I didn't care. And I guess a lot of my time after my injury, mm-hmm. I took the attitude that I really didn't care what people thought or how I seemed. It was like I had, this had given me freedom to be whoever I was. And I was going to have to be strong in whoever I was. So one of the things when I went to Colorado, decided to go to Mm -hmm. Colorado after college, was that I told everybody, they said, what are you going to do when you get there? I said, well, I'm going to get a job at the radio station in town. And um, uh, I said, well, do you know they have a radio station? I said, no. But I figured they do. So I just drove out, and uh, I got there the next day. I walked into the radio station and um, met the owner and made a tape, made an air check tape, and it was pretty bad. But for some reason, he hired me. Hmm. And... um, I don't know exactly why, and I don't think he does either, but, you know, that was probably the most important thing that happened to me afterwards to that point, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, I got hired at my first job that I applied to, even though I had a speech impediment, well, not impediment, but speech issue. Uh-huh. Right. So, um you know, it was it wasn't so good. In fact, the fact that a, a week after I started, he walked in the studio after I finished reading the news, and he said, "Jeff, I want you to talk as little as possible." You know, so I felt great, yeah, and I realized when he said that that I was going to have to improve my talking. So, I um. I used to go in, and we had a associate press teletype machine at that point that, you know, would type the news, and we'd get reams and reams of paper of the news, and I got a tape recorder, and I used to read the news into the tape recorder to practice, and I used to read the news at night in front of the mirror and watch my lips move to make sure I was enunciating properly. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and I just did all that, and, you know, and it got to the point where by the time I left, which was like a year, year and a half later, I did an hour newscast without any issues. 
And uh, it was totally unplanned, too, because somebody didn't show up. And I'd never done it before, but I just did the hour newscast, and it worked out perfectly. And That's um, incredible. And I asked him, I asked him um, when I was leaving, I asked him, how come he didn't fire me? And he said, he told me, he says, because I never saw anybody work that hard. Yeah. What, what's coming so, to me as I hear you, Jeff, is you're, um, you have a very strong will and determination. That, that's what's coming through after your injury. You know, as you drove out to Colorado and you were just sharing, yeah, your, your, your will and your determination to succeed was, was bigger than anything. Yeah, I, I never thought of it like that, but I guess that's who it was. Yeah, that, that's, that's a wonderful story. I'm so glad to hear that and share that with the listeners. It's incredible. Because I know in your book, and I'll jump a bit if I may, um, learning, to live yourself, learning to Live With Yourself After Brain Injury, I was perusing it, and in the section of it you say, you know, that sounds good, but I know for myself and for other people who, if you ever had an injury that or had an illness, that uh, it almost seems, you know, like two different worlds. You know, know yourself and trust your instincts. It's yeah. there seems to be a disconnect. But but you seem to know that when I hear you, you seem to you seem to have that really strong gut instinct. So well, can, you know, one of the things that I think I put in the, in the book is that you know your instincts don't really change. I don't think because of a brain injury. Uh-huh. Your instincts, you know, you're a human being, and your instincts kind of stay there. What changes is your trust of your instincts, because you don't trust your abilities anymore. And abilities aren't really the same thing as instincts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's, I thought that was really important, that people, people just trust, come to a point, where they can trust themselves to okay. do certain things. I mean, it's sort of like teaching my daughter math when she was, you know, in fifth grade, and she was saying, "Oh, I can't do this; it's so hard." And I told, and I sat down with her, and she could do it. She just thought she couldn't, uh. and she was, you know, it scared her or whatever. And and that's that's sort of the fundamental premise that I that I went to live my life with was uh-huh. that, you know, I, I had to learn about myself and know myself and trust myself. Okay. Of course, of course, not trust yourself in, in, if a situation is in any way dangerous, and right. you're, you're taking a risk, you know, not trust yourself like that, but trust your basic instincts um, and your basic knowledge of right and wrong. You know, that's, mm-hmm. I don't think those things change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, you, I know I woke up and was extremely confused. I'm sure other people were as well. But, I mean, yeah, yeah I think your your sense of yourself and your intuition or your gut, I, I think, is always there. And in my case, it, got, it grew stronger. It sounds like yours grew stronger. Um, I find it very interesting that you have an athletic background and you have this, as I said earlier, such a strong will and determination um, you know, really want to push through and succeed and overcome and rise above. And I, and I love that. And um, I want to ask you if I could, when or what was it like when you knew what you wanted to do um, to serve, if you will, do more regarding traumatic brain injury awareness as a survivor? And how did you know what exactly was yours to do? Huh. Uh, that's a good question. I actually, there were no, you know, when I was first injured, there was no network or, or there was no public publicity or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I was working, I was doing um, volunteer work at a school for handicapped kids um, in Framingham, Massachusetts. And um, actually, I was doing it with one of the, men who had been in the car accident with me. He was, he had called me up and we were doing it together at this school called the uh, Life Experience School. And um, Marilyn Spivak 
her daughter was a student there. And she, it wasn't the, really the right setting for her. And we uh-huh. started, myself and the director of the school started to look for a, um, oh, she, oh, she had a brain injury. Um, and myself and the director of the school started writing up this thing to make a halfway house for people who had brain injuries. And Marilyn Spivak, meanwhile, was going off on her own, um, and she started the National Head Injury Foundation. Mm-hmm. So originally, like I was the I was the first like peer mentor for the National Head Injury Foundation. They used to call me up, and I used to go out and see people because I met Marilyn, you know, through through the school. Uh-huh. And um, and I used to go out and see people, and I spent time with people, with uh, there were three or four different um, men and women. Uh, mostly, you know, around the age of 20, 25, who I'd spend time with and just do things with. And um, that's how I got involved. And I got, I got involved with, I was on the board of directors of the mm-hmm. Massachusetts chapter when it first started. And, um, and you know, I just knew that was, that was sort of part of what, you know, my life has meaning is about. When I mm-hmm. said my life has meaning, I didn't know what I meant. But okay. now I sort of did. Right, so it sort of unfolded, and you just allowed and stepped into it, moved forward. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, with that, you've, you've done some great work. Like I said, like you said, you were on the board. You know, through your work, you were on the board of directors at the Massachusetts chapter of the National Head Injury. I know you speak, or you, you know, at many conferences. Um, and there's an author, Sue Holgren, who wrote Brain Injury Advocates. And... Um, you're sort of the pioneer for the term TBI survivor. Uh, you were the first well, that's person. What she, that's what she said. I don't know if I'm the first one or not, but in the book she said I'm the first one. Right. So, to use it. Yeah. yeah that, that's, that's incredible, actually, because I, I want to ask you, so, you know, what does that mean for you to be a, a traumatic brain injury survivor? Now, what would you say? Well, you know, it means for myself, it means, you know, I've battled to this thing that, you know, too many people have to battle through and, you know, was fortunate enough to, to sort of come out the other end being thankful that I had, that it had happened to me because of the, the, the depth and the richness it gave to my life. Uh huh. Um, and you know, I'm just part of. I'm just one of the many, many, many TBI survivors who have ever been and who are now. And you know, hopefully, I can, you know, contribute in some way so that um, you know other survivors can find a way to see through their injury and live a fulfilled life. That's my goal. Right. Well, we share a common goal because it's, you know, the the point of the program and the point of the, my book that I'll be writing. It's, um, the numbers are staggering with, you know, this. And it's, yeah, to make a difference in someone's life. And to a family is um, incredible because it isn't always just a survivor. It, it's um, the person who's injured and their immediate family and extended family and their peer group. It's it's mm-hmm. like branches on a tree. It's amazing, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it's huge. Yeah. It's, it is. so many people. It is. It's like a weeping willow if we want to call it a tree, right? It just has many, many yeah, branches. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So it looks like we're coming up on a break, Jeff. So I'm going to ask the listeners to please stay with us. We're going to pause for a quick break, and we'll, we'll be right back. Thank you. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Do you feel alone? 
even when you're surrounded by others? Do you feel that there's sometimes nowhere to turn and nobody really understands? Remember, you are not alone. Every week, host April J. Ford, who has faced adversity as a constant in her life, helps you rise above life's challenges with your own blueprint meant to help you find out who you are. April's challenges have included childhood sexual abuse, becoming a widow and single parent at 32, and other such curveballs. She'll help you every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. When is the last time you saw sparkles of life in your day? Each day holds a treasure, the extra in the ordinary. It is too easy to miss them because they're familiar and we take them for granted. If you want to add sparkle to your day, listen to Mighty Gems, spotlighting everyday jewels with Dee Lee. She offers a new way to view the world and to discover your own Mighty Gems in daily life. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions, some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to The Sky's the Limit with Karen Levitt. If you have a comment or question about the show, we encourage you to send an email to the sky's the limit show at gmail.com. That's the sky's the limit show at gmail.com. And remember to use the hashtag the gift is the shift all over social media and encourage others to discover the program. Now, back to Karen Levitt. Hi, this is Karen Levitt, and I'm joined with my guest this week, Jeff Seabell. And we're talking to Jeff, who's a traumatic brain injury survivor. And Jeff has had quite a long, extensive career. He's been an advocate. He's also an author. And with that, Jeff, I'd like to ask you, what inspired you to write your book? It's um, termed, it's different than other traumatic brain injury survivor books, and how so? Hmm. Well, um, yeah, the, original, the first book I wrote was like 25 years ago. And okay. that was sort of, a, I wrote it as a, a fiction account of somebody who had a brain injury. But I always wanted to write in some way to communicate what happened to me. And I also wanted to write something, you know, this was what makes it different. I didn't really want to write my story. I wanted to write what I learned. Um, Okay. And I really wanted to, you know, just my story I thought would be pretty boring. I just wanted to, take what happened to me and get something out of it. And um, so that's really what I wrote. I based the book on uh, some a bunch of blogs I wrote in 2005. And I actually based almost completely on a bunch of blogs I wrote back then. And, you know, one day I, I kept thinking, like, what am I going to do? i got to write a book. i got to do something here. And I just Drove, was driving around one day, and I thought of a title, and um, and that was it. I thought of the title. I went to the library and worked for about three months on figuring out how I was going to do it, and then just started writing it. And um, it took me about two and a half years, and it was mm-hmm. actually really a lot of fun. It was it was hard work, but it really really gave me a real thrill uh, coming up with some of those things and writing it. You know, and I, and I, I hope that um, people can get something from it. Well, I was just going to say that I, you know, you were kind enough and, and sent me a copy, and I thank you. And um, I want to say it, it is very easy um, to read and understand, and it's engaging. I know um, I particularly like one of the titles in Chapter 3 who say, Keep your sword sharp for battle. 
realizing that strength and power to succeed lies within you is both unsettling and and empowering. And I found that really rich, and I wanted to know more. And um, you share a, a story in that chapter about a group of men from England. I, you know, I, I just found it really incredible. If you'd like to share a little bit about that. Oh yeah, actually, I just I just published a blog this week about that same man. Um, yeah, the story. The man was a child during uh, World War Two in I think it was in Suffolk, England. Grew up with another a friend of his, and there was an American air base there. And um, they he got friendly with some of the American airmen. You know, he used to listen to these these fly guys talk, tell stories. And uh, one of them told him about hiking the Appalachian Trail. And he said, wow. He kept that idea of hiking the Appalachian Trail in his mind for like 50 years and never forgot it. And one day he went to his friend and said, well, I'm going to go hike the Appalachian Trail. He said, I'll go with you. So that was 1991, I think, that they started. I met them when they were hiking one day when I was on Mount Washington, they were there too. And they were, it was great because after the first year, they hiked like 350 miles in two, two or three months, I think. And um, they we're not doing that again. That was, a, that was tough. We're not doing that again. And then, they, then they, they got a change of heart, and they had come back every year for 15 years when I met them. And they had about 350 miles left. And, you know, I just, I just uh, got so much from talking to him. You know, mm-hmm. and I realized, you know, that for him, it was a choice about whether he continued on the Appalachian Trail or not. And they took the hard road, the challenge road, and they continued, even though they weren't going to at first. For us, it's not a choice. For people who've had a brain injury, it's not a choice that we can stop fighting or stop being challenged. It's there every day. Mm-hmm. But he got up and he and he he went back every year. So, what could I learn from that in my you know my life and my struggle with the brain injury that would keep me going? And it just brought back a lot of stuff. And then I asked him. I said, uh, so what are you going to do when you finish? He said, well, you know, I'm not going to finish. I'm 68 or something, and my friend's 71. You know, we have the toughest part of the trail left. I don't think we're going to finish. And I got all excited. I said, I'll finish it for you. You know, I don't know how I was going to do that, but um, but that's what I told him. But and then it brought that to mind, the fact that, they were coming back and doing it every year because that's what they do. That's what they did. That's what made them feel alive, even though they weren't going to finish. And it just brought to mind the importance of living your life every day with the tools you have, regardless mm-hmm. of, the, of the finish of what's there at the end. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what it gives you because because you are you are doing hard work and what you get from that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I got from all that. Well, that that's, like I said, it's heartfelt, it's rich, and it's so meaningful. And um, what, what inspires you these days and keeps you mo- motivated? Because, you, know, well, you know, traumatic brain injury is, is ever-changing and not pleasant, but what keeps you inspired, Jeff, and motivated to live on purpose? Well, you know, it's interesting because actually it's kind of like, it's almost with the same thing as that man from England, you know. Like one of the things I said to him was, you're going to leave a great legacy for your son. You know, and he, he was hiking, the day I met him, he was hiking with his friend who was 71 and his son who was like 40 or something. And I think, that what drives me a lot is the fact that I want to keep doing stuff for the community. You know, maybe I can help somebody somewhere 
not to live their life more the way they want to. And mm-hmm. also because, you know, I want to leave my, I think a part of it is I want to leave my children a legacy mm-hmm. of their father, you know, doing something even though, you know, she had a brain injury and, you know, wasn't able to work. He could mm-hmm. still be productive and make a difference. Nice. And look, that's, that's actually beautiful. So living beyond your diagnosis. And we're coming to a close, Jeff, so I always like to ask if there's one takeaway you'd hope the listeners and what that might be. Hmm. Um, just that, um, the, with brain injury, you know, it's not always what you think it is. You know, and, and sometimes it's important to try and look around the corner um, and to be so that you can explore your own capabilities and and know yourself better, and then mm-hmm. take that knowledge of yourself and be able to live a fulfilled life. Nice, thank you. You're welcome. Well, and I completely understand. It's an honor. Uh, we're we're getting ready to close, Jeff. So I'd like to ask uh, for listeners to contact you and reach you. On my my website, yeah, for your book, yeah, um, yeah. My well, my email is Jeff at tbisurvivor dot com. Okay, easy to remember. Okay, it's T is in boy, T is in Tom, B is in boy, I is in India. Survivor dot com. Yep, is that right? Okay, awesome. And I want to say, hour with you. I've enjoyed the conversation and learning and having your book and sharing with you. And I'm sure the listeners, I hope the listeners have have enjoyed this as well and gained a lot of insight. And we're getting ready to close, so I want to say thank you, Jeff, and to the listeners, and see you next week. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for The Sky's the Limit. Karen Levitt looks forward to having you tune in for another program next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Remember, the gift is the shift. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.